Bibles uh, to Judges chapter 16. We've been in Judges for a while now. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible with you, there are some around the room in some chairs. So I encourage you to get the Lord's Word open to Judges chapter 16. We're going to just kind of dive in this morning and get started. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that you have revealed yourself through your word to us. What a blessing that is. So Lord, as we have your word open, we ask that by your spirit you would illuminate your word to us, that you would help us to know what you have to say to us in these days. Help us to understand, give us ears to understand, eyes to see, and a posture to be willing to be transformed by your word, by what your word says. May you be glorified this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So we've been in Judges. Uh, we've been learning about Samson recently. And uh, as you're aware, Samson has a little bit of a uh, woman problem. In fact, he, he has this issue with uh, these Philistine womans. Can you guys get me onto my slide uh, with the mouse there, please? There we go. Maybe. There we go. So he likes these Philistine ladies, right? A couple months ago, uh, yeah, months, wow. It feel, blah, 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 blah. A couple weeks ago, there we go. We were in uh, Judges 14 where we see Samson just lusting and gushing over this Philistine woman and Timnah, and he, and he demands his parents to say, go get that one for me, right? He just is head over heels over her. But they're like, they're like, son, don't do this. Like, isn't there any woman among our people that you could marry? And he goes, no, I want that one. And we, we learned about that story, right? We learned about what happened with his wife and the tragic ending there. This morning, we're going to learn about two more Philistine women that Samson has affections for. We see the first one here in the very first verse. We see that Samson's going to sleep with a Philistine prostitute. And then later in the chapter, we see that Samson uh, falls in love with another Philistine woman named Delilah. So what is it about these Philistine women? I don't know. But man, he has got his eyes set on them. There's something about them that just ensnares Samson. We see here in the first three verses the story with the prostitute. We see in 16.1 it says, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So we see that uh, he sleeps with this prostitute, and in the middle of the night, uh, word gets out that, you know, hey, Samson's in town. Not only is he in town, he's in a place he shouldn't be, right? Let's set an ambush for him. 
They, so they set this trap, and, and they decide that uh, they're going to wait till morning to attack. Um, maybe, you know, they didn't have coffee back then, and it took a little while to wake up in the morning. I don't know. Maybe they thought they were going to catch him off guard and catch him still, you know, rubbing the sleepies out of his eyes. But in any regard, he wakes up in the middle of the night, at midnight it says, and not only does he wake up, he gets up and he rips out the, the gate doors, puts them on his back, and marches to Hebron. And while we don't really see here any... Um, acknowledgement to the power of the Holy Spirit giving him the strength. If you understand what these doors look like, there's no way a, a single man would carry these on his back 40 miles, which was the distance that he carried them. See, these gate doors are about two stories tall. In the early Iron Age, which is where we've moved, remember at the beginning of Judges, it was the late Bronze Age. We are now chronologically in the early Iron Age, historically speaking. And historical evidence and facts show that the gates would look something like this, and they would be about two stories tall. I don't know about you, but just lugging the speakers and stuff in from the work we've done hurt my back. So, you know, like, I can't imagine the amount of strength it would take for one person to carry this. This is obviously empowerment from the Holy Spirit, though he's not credited in the text. We don't really know much else about this, this prostitute woman other than the fact that Samson's got a thing for these Philistine women. In verse 4, it says, after, he loved, uh, after, this, after this event, he loved another woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, now, Delilah and Samson might be one of the most famous stories that you recognize when you think of Stam Samson. Or if you're a guy, maybe you like the jawbone of the donkey story part of Samson, right? But probably most of us know the story of Samson and Delilah. We see that he falls in love again. And, and again, this is not an interracial thing. It, it is... God had a desire for his people to stay within the people of Israel so that they would not be led astray to idols, so that they wouldn't be led astray in their love to these foreign gods. And even though Samson is a man called by God and from, from the miraculous you know, calling and, and the womb and, and has this vow upon him, he doesn't do the greatest job living that out, as most of us could probably go, yeah, I feel like I've been Samson sometimes. But there's some things in the story that, that I felt were appropriate to, to kind of point out and make us think a little bit here. We see that he falls in love with another Philistine girl, Delilah, with another opportunity for Samson to be led astray. We see that in the story here that Delilah is bribed by the lords of the Philistines with 1,100 silver coins each. Now, if you remember, how many Philistine lords are there that the Israelites did not conquer? How many were there? Five. 
five Philistine lords, right? And so each one of them has given or is, is promising, bribing Delilah with 1,100 silver coins. Now, I just did some math, and, and I chuckled when I, when I did this because every time I say that I've done the math and I think I've got it right, I go back and I listen and I go, I didn't do that right. <laughs> so, so those of you who are really good at math, you can double check me, but I think I did it right this time. Um, I took a look this week at the value uh, in a, uh, for an ounce of silver. Now, those change daily, so this number could be slightly rough. But when I checked it, the, the value for silver was $23.12 an ounce. My uh, study text said that 1,100 silver coins would come to the, uh, about 140 pounds of silver. So when you do the calculations, that comes uh, with all five of them, it comes to about this value, quarter of a million dollars. This is the bribe that the lords are telling Delilah, we will give you this kind of money. Now, I'm modernizing it, right? But you can, this is a life-changing amount of money for us. It certainly would have been for her. The reason I bring this up is because it reveals where Delilah's heart really is. And it helps us to understand what's really going on in this weird relationship that we're going to read. So I, I, I kind of picture, you know, I'll back up a little bit. They, they say seduce him. The Lord's come and they, they bribe her. They say seduce him. See where his great strength lies and by what means we might overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we're going to give you this life-changing amount of money. And so I kind of think, like, to myself when I read this, I kind of think, like, Delilah goes, okay, how am I going to do this? I, I, I kind of get this picture in my head of her plotting and, and kind of trying to come up with a cunning plan, right? Maybe she looks a little bit like this, <laughs> right? Like this red panda here going, hmm, how am I going to do this? Or for the younger people in the crowd, you know, this guy, Plankton, going, oh, I want the Krabby Patty formula, right? Like, there's, there's this scheming that comes to my mind that I think Delilah probably went through. And then you read the next verse. And she goes to Samson and she says, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. <laughs> and you think to yourself, like, that's what you came up with? Like, and I think we can sit here and read and know it's, it's a trap. Like, this should have warning bells going off in your mind, right? I thought of this guy from Lost in Space. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. Like, warning bells should be going off in Samson's mind. Yes? She clearly has it out for him. And yet, he goes along with it. Instead of, instead of Samson picking up the pieces and taking note of the warnings, I kind of picture him kind of going, hmm, <laughs> let's play this little game. 
we see Samson and Delilah go back and forth with this little game. And I realize that as much as Delilah is playing Samson to try to get this life-changing sum of money, Samson's playing her too. And this is toxic. There's actually a word for this kind of relationship. It's called codependency. I found a slide here. Uh, it says that signs of a relationship that has codependency. I'm just going to read a few of these. It says, a tendency to do more than your share all of the time. Fear of losing relationships or abandonment. An overwhelming need to be reassured and recognized. A tendency to apologize to keep the peace. A problem with creating and keeping boundaries. Doing things you don't want to do to make the other person happy. These are all warning signs of a, a relationship that is not healthy, not how God has designed it. And this is what is deemed codependency. And I realize, like, that's not how God designed marriage specifically, but also just healthy relationships to be. And so I've got our first application here. This triangle represents a relationship. Specifically, I'm going to focus on marriage. And in this triangle, we see that one corner represents you. The next corner represents your spouse. The last corner represents God. And every healthy marriage, as God has designed it, has these three components. And you'll notice that triangles come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. But the reality and the lesson that I have learned is that the intimacy that between you and your spouse will change depending on your intimacy of each of you with the Lord. And so... The further you are with your intimacy with God or your relationship with God is going to affect where you're at on that angle. And the same thing for your spouse. Her intimacy with the Lord and, uh, is going to change where she lines up on her side of the triangle. And so the, the lesson to be learned here is that as each of you and your spouse individually increase your intimacy with the Lord, guess what happens with you? the intimacy between the two of you gets greater. And this is important because this is, this is God's design. God designed marriage to draw you and your spouse into oneness. And it works like this. And, and, and it's not like when you become married, God leaves the picture. No, God's the center of the relationship, of the marriage. And when he ceases to be the center of the marriage, that's when you fall into all sorts of toxicity and problems. All healthy marriages include three persons. You, your spouse, and the Lord. And we clearly see here, with the story of Samson and Delilah, Delilah doesn't know the Lord. She doesn't know him at all. She's a Philistine woman, she's a pagan, and she has multiple gods, including Baal, uh, among others, that she worships. Which is why God wanted God's people, the Israelites, to stay within Israel in their marriages. And 
And so we see this game play out between Samson and Delilah in verses 7 through 17. We see these tests of strength, specifically these three. We see a test of the seven fresh bowstrings. We see a test of new ropes. We see a test of the seven locks of his hair being webbed together with a pin. And each time, it never works. And preceding each test is a cry from Delilah. So this first test, Delilah says, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. That's her cry to Samson. Now, remember, we already talked about how, like, we thought she would be a little more crafty, but she kind of comes straight to it. She asks nicely. She says, please, please tell me. You know, maybe she thought that the kindness factor would work. And guys, sometimes that does work. <laughs> but uh, he's, he goes on to tell her, he says, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, verse 7, that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snaps the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. We see here in this first test that uh, these bowstrings. Now, the thing you have to understand, and, and we have a gentleman in here that probably knows this much better than, than my research, bowstrings back then were made from animal guts. What was one of the vows of the Nazarite? Not to touch dead things. Guts, if I'm accurate, are dead things, dead parts of an animal. This is now the third time that vow is being broken by Samson. He allows himself. He, he even says, seven fresh bowstrings will hold me. Another reality about bowstrings back in the day were that they needed to dry and age to come to their full tensile strength, to, to get hard and to be strong. And so fresh bowstrings weren't very strong. They'd be stretchy. They, they wouldn't hold their tensile strength. Too much elastin in the guts. And so I see here that the, the Philistines, they're not dumb people, but they're pretty desperate. They, they're, they're pretty gullible in saying, oh, okay, we'll provide seven fresh bowstrings. They know bow, fresh bowstrings aren't going to hold anybody. They're not strong yet. And yet, they jump right in. They provide these seven bowstrings that haven't fully dried. And he snaps them and, and is able to take advantage. And we go to the second, you know, and, and after this, she cries out, Delilah cries out and says, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. Again, she asks nicely. And we see the next test, the test of the new ropes. Verse 11, he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. This again shows their gullibility, because, if that's a word, how gullible they are. Because just in the last chapter, the Israelites, the, the men of Judah, bound him in fresh ropes, brought him to the Philistines, and he snaps them off and kills a thousand Philistines with a jawbone. So they just saw that new ropes don't hold them. And yet they're quick to give these new ropes because they just desperately want to get Samson. You can see that in Judges 15, 13. They just experienced this. And so she cries out again. We've got this back and forth game between Delilah and Samson. And so far, Samson's got the upper hand. And she cries out again and she says, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. Notice that the please has no longer there. She's not asking nicely anymore. She's demanding to be the answer to be given. And he, he goes on in, you know, in verse 13 here. Um, he says to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into a web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke up from his sleep and pulled the pin away, the loom and the web. So we see this new test of the weaving of the hair. Uh, and what, what's interesting to note here is that this, the word used for pin is the very same Hebrew word that we've heard before in a different story. It's the same word that was used that J.L. used to pin Sisera to the ground. The tent peg. So that's what's being shoved in his hair that he pulls out. Interesting. And then we see her cry out again. How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. Uh Uh-oh. We see a change of tactics now. We see a change in her tactics. Delilah calls to question his love for her. She goes straight to the source. She's shifting gears. She, she, this, this demanding thing ain't working. I'm going to shift gears. And she calls his love for her into question. And then... She digs in. Not only does she call it into question, she digs in. We, have, we even see that it says that in when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Now, if you're like me, I didn't know what vex means. Uh, that's not a word I use in my everyday vocabulary. So I looked it up. Vex, by the Webster Dictionary, says to make someone feel annoyed, frustrated, or worried, to cause great distress. That's what vex means. Now, the Hebrew word here is similar. It means to grieve, to vex, to cut down, to discourage. 
And so we see that she pressed him hard day by day with her words, vexing his soul to death. She was grieving him by the words he was, she was using. She's cutting him down and discouraging him. I have to be careful how I proceed from here. And based on the chuckles, you know why. This can happen in marriages. And what it looks like in marriage is something like this. Or like this. We see, I think Samson's this guy here in the green coat. He's... Stop nagging me with the words. Stop beating me down. I'm, I can't take it. And I think there's a lesson for, for men and husbands and wives to be reminded that we have faults, we have sin, that we have to surrender to the Lord, and that uh, we have instructions in, in uh, the New Testament of how wives are supposed to react to their husbands and likewise. This is clearly not what Delilah is doing with Samson. She is beating him down with, his, with her words. And we see that Samson gives in to that. He goes on, he says, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Notice he doesn't acknowledge God at all. He doesn't, he doesn't say that his strength comes from the Lord. He acknowledges that he's got this vow, that he's been a Nazarite to God, but that hasn't stopped him from breaking that vow in the past. And so there's something that he believes about himself with this vow that, that, that is tied to his hair. Not tied to the Lord, but tied to his hair. This is important because in our relationship with the Lord, we need to know where our strength comes from. Our strength comes from the Lord. We don't have the power to do things. Uh, yeah, we, we can do things. God, God has given us able bodies and, and, and the ability to do things. But anything of lasting matter, lasting worth, must come from the Lord. And here, Samson hasn't made that connection yet. And so he pours out his heart to her. And we see the result of that. Verses 18 to 22, we see that the Lord leaves Samson, but he does not know. Verse 19, it says that his strength left him. Verse 20, he, he, you know, so while, while he's sleeping, Delilah brings in somebody and shaves his head. His hair's gone. He wakes up, doesn't have any idea that the power's left him. And so he wakes up and he goes, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. 
Let's talk about that for just a second. I got ahead of myself. This is important because... Now, you would think that with everything that Samson has gone through and all the rushing of the Holy Spirit and, and the calling on his life, that the absence of God's presence would be known. We're going to discover a little bit here in just a little in a, a moment here. Verses 23 to 31, we see Samson's repentance and death. We see that the five lords of the Philistines throw this huge party. They, they capture Samson. So uh, I got a little bit ahead of myself in the story. So Samson goes up, he gets captured, and they gouge out both of his eyes. His hair was gone. God's power left him, and he gets captured. And not only does he get captured, they, they tear out his eyes. They force him to work at the mill where he would have to hold on to a bar and walk and grind the grind flour or corn or whatever it might be. Totally dependent on others to guide him through life. Humbled, to say the least. And while he's in their servitude, while he's in their prison, the five lords of the Philistines throw this huge party. We see that uh, there are 3,000 men and women present. So uh, this would be roughly 6,000 people at this party. And in the midst of this party, with all the drinking and all the vibrations and all the things that were happening, uh, the Lord say, I want to be entertained by Samson. They want to kind of gloat over their prize, if you will. And so they summon to get Samson, and, and uh, they want Samson to come and entertain them. They really want to bring a, a sense of humility and shame to Samson. We see that he gets, he gets brought out, um, and they make him stand between the two pillars. And so he's standing there between the two pillars, blind. And he's being humiliated before all these people. Does this sound like anyone we know? It's a foreshadowing of the Savior, the coming King that would die on a cross. Humiliated in front of everybody. And in this moment, Samson realizes and repents. He says, oh, Lord. He calls out to Yahweh. He says, oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Let me die with the Philistines. He finally acknowledges where his strength came from. And he turns to the Lord. And in that moment, uh, the Lord gives, gives him the Holy Spirit and he gets the strength and he takes these two pillars and they come crashing down. 
archaeological evidence has shown that uh, the places where this party would have been would have probably been in a temple of some sort, and there were two central pillars in the center of the area. So think about this room being held up by two pillars in the middle, and everything, all the weight support would come on these two pillars. So not only is he standing between the two pillars, he's literally in the middle of everybody. And he breaks the pillars in the Lord's power and the whole thing comes crashing down and everyone dies, including Samson. And the application that I draw from this is the longer that we live with unrepentant sin in our life, the more blind we become to it. Samson had this vow on his life, and, and, you know, we see at least three times him breaking that vow, touching the dead lion and, you know, scraping out the honey. We see uh, the bowstrings and the, the jawbone of the donkey, right? Those were all dead animals that, that he touched and broke the vow. He had this, this sinful lustfulness for women that he shouldn't be lusting after, And he was living his life unawares that this was a problem. So much so that when the Lord left him, he had no idea. In the same way, the longer we live with sin in our life that we have not confessed, the more numb and blind we become to it. And so there's a lesson we have. We must be a people as Christ's disciples that confess our sins to one another and to God regularly. Regularly. Otherwise, we risk becoming like Samson, blind. I have a song that I want to read to you that I think kind of summarizes this a little bit. This is a Casting Crowns song. Uh, They're a contemporary Christian artist. They've been around for many years. The song is called Slow Fade. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read it. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the strings. Be careful, little feet, where you go, for it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray and thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. When flattery leads to compromise, the end is always near. Be careful, little lips, what you say, for empty words and promises lead broken hearts astray. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray and thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. The journey from your mind to your hands is shorter than your thinking. Be careful if you think you stand, you just might be sinking. 
It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white turn to gray. And thoughts invade, choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. Daddies never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. Families never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. We must be a people who don't allow sin to take hold unconfessed because the more we do, the more we fade. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow fade. But there's good news. I want to leave you with good news. Scripture tells us that even while we were sinners, rebels, traitors to the throne, Jesus came and died for us, Romans 5.8, making a way so that all who would repent and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior would be born again to new life, life eternal, John 3.16, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And as such are sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13, who now lives inside each and every believer, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, as a guarantee of heavenly inheritance, 1 Peter 1.4. The good news is that for those who have repentant faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, 1 John 1.9 applies to you. We've already read it in service. If we, are to confess, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friends, don't believe the enemy's lies. Don't allow your sin to blind you. Confess, confess, repent, repent. Trust the word of God. He is faithful and just. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises in your word. Lord, I pray that you would continue to move in and among your people, your bride, among this church and all Christ-honoring, Bible-believing churches, Lord, that are your body, part of your body, the bride. Lord, help us to trust what your word says and when we're struggling, because we all do, we all struggle. We all have this sinful flesh we live in until you call us home or come back again. So to say otherwise would make you a liar and make us liars. I think your scripture actually says something about that. Help us to believe and to trust what you've revealed to us. For you are a good and gracious and loving Heavenly Father who no matter how far we've strayed, have open arms waiting to hug us if we would just turn to you. Lord, I pray for my family. I pray for this church family, this body, Lord, that you would make yourself known in these beautiful, merciful, gracious ways, Lord, that we might learn to live our lives daily, moment by moment, in full surrender to you. That we break the chains of bondage that bind us and find the true freedom that we have in Christ. Not so that we would gain any glory, but that your name, Jesus, would be glorified and the world would take notice. 
It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.